a special welcome to you if this is your first time here. Uh, we really hope that uh, this CU will be a community that you find is worth investing in. Uh, like a few people have already mentioned today, uh, we're studying the book of Deuteronomy this semester, uh, and you might be asking why. Uh, because Deuteronomy, it literally means second law in Greek. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew there. Uh, it's a book of laws. And if there's one thing that we want you to know from your time at the CU, if you're here for a, for a day, for a week, for the three, four, five years that you're here studying, it's this. You are not saved by what you do. You might be the perfect Girl Scout. You might be a rebel with a history. But wherever you are on that spectrum, you need saving. And the only way that happens is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and accepting his forgiveness. You cannot secure the favour of God by obeying the laws that he gives. That is just the, the foundational base assumption of the Christian gospel. Your sin is too great, you will never do it. But if that's true, that raises a whole bunch of questions for us, I think, when we come to the Old Testament, and in particular books like Deuteronomy. Because if we can't get to God by law, we can't please him by perfect obedience, then why does he give us law in the first place? Uh, and more than that, assuming, and we know that he has, that he's given us that law, what's our relationship to that law now that we're in Christ? I mean, why do we even bother looking at the laws when we don't, just need, we don't need to hear another obligation that we can't fulfill, uh, that can't save us? We actually need to hear the gospel that can. Why Deuteronomy? Now, these are all good questions uh, and ones that I hope we will answer throughout the semester. But before we can get there, we need to establish some things about the book that we're studying. Otherwise, we're going to completely misunderstand it. And so there are three things that I think that we need to know to understand Deuteronomy. They're there in your outlines under point one, understanding Deuteronomy. Uh, we're all business today, so there's a lot to get through. So let's get into it and have a look at the first thing. Uh, and we're going to do that by beginning again at the beginning of um, the reading that we just had from Sharon. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. So let me read these out to you and we'll see if we can pick up some details. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. Now in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edre had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law. So a couple of observations here. First one. Deuteronomy is a speech. Have a look there again at verse 1. These are the words Moses spoke. And it's important that we understand that as we begin the study of this book because I think usually Christians think that Deuteronomy is just a book of laws. But if we start there, what's going to happen is we're going to miss the reason God gives us Deuteronomy. We'll start thinking like law students. And can I tell you, there has been no greater bane on the society of the Western world than people thinking like law students. <laughs> and what happens is you get caught up in the commands like if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want. And like, that's fantastic if you live up in the, the Swan Valley, right? But, but, but otherwise, it's just confusing and perplexing. What does this mean? And so the place that we have to start is where Deuteronomy starts, which is with the observation that this is a, not a rule book, but a speech. In fact, it's a series of speeches. But what's Moses speaking about? Well, we see it there in verse 5. 
He's expounding the law. So he's not just listing them, he's preaching them. In much the same way that your church pastor takes the Bible passage on the weekend and explains it to you and then encourages you to put it into practice. That's what he's doing. That's what Moses is doing here. Another observation. Deuteronomy is a speech, and it's a speech made on the edge of the promised land. And we see this again in verse 1. We're told the, the location. He speaks to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. Now, we're given a whole bunch of place names there that we don't know, but we do know the general location. It's on the plains of Moab, uh, and it's up there with the red X. Uh, the, the red area there is Canaan, the promised land, uh, and that's where Moses is with the Israelites preaching to them. Now, that location is important, right, because all of the books of the Bible up until this point, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, have all been heading to this single point. The people of God entering into the land that God had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So there is a great sense of anticipation. We are almost there. And that brings us to a third observation from those first five verses. Deuteronomy is a speech. It's made on the edge of the promised land. And it's made to a new generation of Israel. Now you'll notice there in verse 2, that we're told in brackets, a bit random to put that in your second sentence in a book. Some advice, if you write a book, never do that. But here's what Moses did. And it tell, he tells us that it takes 11 days to get from Horeb, which is where the law was given. This is Exodus, another name for it is Mount Sion, um, uh, to Kadesh Barnea. I said Sion, I meant Sinai, apologies. And here's the, the little the route that they took. You can see the journey on the map. They start down the bottom in the south at Mount Sinai, Horeb, and they travel up to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and then eventually to that big X to the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan. Now, when you put this journey into Google Maps, not a strategy that I advise in today's age, uh, not the most precise method of timing. You've got to understand that there are traffic lights back then. It would be much faster um, 2,000 years ago, three, 4,000 years ago, the thing that we need to realise here is that it would have taken them three weeks tops, right? They were pretty good walkers back then. They didn't have things like cars. So they had some pretty hectic calves. It's taken them 40 years. And the reason it's taken them that long is because rather than walking straight into the promised land as God had commanded them, they had chickened out. And they didn't trust that God would give them the land. And so as punishment, God determines, and you can actually see this in today's passage if you look there in chapter 1, verse 35. He determined that no one from this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your ancestors. And so he wipes out an entire generation of Israelites because they did not trust him. And now here on the edge of the promised land, it's take two. And the question on everyone's mind is what's going to happen? Will the next generation finally enter into the promised land? Or will history repeat itself? So Deuteronomy, it's a speech made on the edge of the promised land to a new generation of Israelites. And that's just the first of the three things we need to understand. Uh, the second one we see in verses 6 to 18, and that's that Deuteronomy concerns the promises of God. You see, when you look at verses 5 and 6, when Moses begins expounding the law, he doesn't begin with particular statutes or rules. He doesn't care about Umayyad's vineyard at this point. He begins with promises. And that's critical to understand because without the promises, then we won't understand the purpose or the reason for the laws that follow. So have a look there at verse 6 and see how Moses begins his speech. 
He says, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river the Euphrates. So there's the promised land mapped out. And then verse 8, and this is our key verse. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore. So there's the promised language. The Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants, who are the Israelites that Moses is speaking to. Now, brief biblical history here to get the context of what's happening. Um, let's start at the beginning. God creates the world, creates man, but man sins, disobeys God's commands. And so God, because he's a just God, punishes humanity and he curses them with death and he excludes them from the blessing of his presence. That's the problem of Genesis 3. But because God is not just a just God, but a merciful God, he makes three promises to a man called Abraham. Now, do you guys remember what they are? They pop up every now and then in talks and in other places around the sea. The first one is offspring. God will make Abraham into a great nation with descendants as many as the stars in the sky. The second is the promise of land, which we've seen in this passage. And the third promise is the promise of blessing. And it's not just that Abraham will be blessed, but that through him, and you can see this in Genesis 12, 3, that through him all nations on the earth will be blessed. And so that one's really important because this is God's declaration that he will eventually remove the curse of sin and restore humanity to the blessing of fellowship with him. And though all of God's promises to Abraham will eventually resolve themselves in Jesus, these three things, offspring, land, blessing, they're the road to God's salvation. And Moses looks around and he says the trajectory is good. And that's what verses 9 to 18 are about. You might have been scratching your head, wow, this is a long Bible reading. Why are we reading about organizational structures? Moses is just complaining that he can't handle it himself, so you've got a bunch of judges. That, this isn't a random Israelite org chart. Uh, Moses has had to put those structures in place because of verse 10. Have a look. And what do you notice about the language? The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's the promise of offspring. Tick. And those offspring are now sitting on the edge of the promised land. We're almost two for three here. And if we can just get in there, then we can start to see the blessing of Abraham on his descendants start to spread to the world. So Deuteronomy, it's a speech and it concerns the promises of God. Now, there's one more thing we need to understand before we can really launch in, and that's this. Deuteronomy is about the response of God's people to those promises. Have a look there in verse 19. The Lord commands them to set out from Horeb. Uh, remember, that's Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given in the book of Exodus. And they travel to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is in the southern fringe of the promised land. You can kind of see it's just kind of just near the red area. And that's going to be their entry point into the land. Now, we get to verse 20. They reach the hill country of the Amorites. And look at the language Moses uses there. This is verse 20. Which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. It's as good as yours. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to choose somebody for this. Ethan. If I told you that I promised to give you this chocolate bar, 
I've been told that there's a very nice chocolate bar. I've gone and bought it. I've paid for it. I've, I've used my hard-earned salary on it. It's yours. Come and take it. What would you do? What would be the smart thing to do? <laughs> the wise thing to do? The good thing to do? I would have thought, let's try this again. Ed. You're right, I have made the promise to Ethan. And it is yours, Ethan. You can come up and take it. What Ethan has just demonstrated for us is a right response to the promises of God. I have delusions of grandeur. They're not that big. It's okay. If he hadn't done that, he would never have enjoyed the blessing of my promise. Now, it's not that he's done anything to deserve that chocolate bar. He's done nothing to earn it. The very act of taking it is merely a response to my gracious initiative. All he needed to do was trust me that when I said that surety goodness was his, it was his. And that out of that trust, he would obey my command to come up, take and eat the chocolate bar. And those two elements, trust and obedience, those are precisely the two things that Israel refuses to do. And we see it there in verse 26. They're unwilling to come up. And instead of trusting him, they grumble against him. They say in verse 27, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there who were people who were like eight foot tall. And so they don't trust, they grumble. And instead of obeying, they rebel against the command of God. In fact, they do that twice. You would have noticed that in our reading. First of all, he tells them to go into the land in verse 26. They don't do it. And then second of all, in verse 43, he tells them, all right, we're done here. It's to the wilderness with you guys. I go, no, no, okay, we've changed our mind. Let's go. And they go in when he says not to, but because God isn't with them, they get absolutely smashed. And what their example shows us in the negative is what response God requires of us when he speaks to us words of promise. We are to trust and to obey. That is as basic as Christianity gets. When God speaks, you listen to what he says and you do what he says. You trust his words and you obey them. Now, when you take those three things, speech, promises, the right response, you're now in a position to understand Deuteronomy. Because the whole book is Moses speaking to Israel on the edge of the promised land and he's seeking to stir up a response of trust and obedience to the promises of God. It's not some sterile list of laws. It's a piece of urgent and heartfelt persuasion. Because Moses doesn't want to see a repeat performance of the wilderness generation. There are only three survivors. It's Caleb and Joshua. They get to go in. Moses is about to die because God has said, you're part of that generation. You're done. You don't get the promise. And so he desperately wants God's people to enjoy God's blessing as a result of God's promises. That's what's happening in Deuteronomy. And once we understand that, we can understand the rest of the book. So we're going to speed through the next two chapters because it pays to understand how Moses stirs up that response of trust and obedience. He's already started doing it in chapter 1, and we'll see it again in the next two chapters. He gives them a history lesson. But as with all history in the Bible, its purpose is not merely to inform what's happened in the past, 
but to show that what's happened in the past should influence our decisions in the present. And so Moses, he sets out right at the beginning of chapter 1 to show what Israel's history reveals to them about God, about how and why they should respond to him. So if you've got your Bibles, have a look at chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to see two things. We're going to see that Israel's history reveals God's faithfulness and we're going to see that Israel's history reveals God's power. But to see that, we first of all need to know what happened. So let's do a brief overview. I've got another map here. Uh, they're in Kadesh Barnea. They're licking their wounds. Um, they've been sent into the wilderness and they're wandering around the hill country of Mount Seir. This is in chapter 1. Uh, and, and they're there for a long... Sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. And they're there for a long time. Uh, that's code for 40 years. They have not been having a good time of it. They've been there for a while. Everyone's died out. Now, at the end of that time, we see this in verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord directs Israel through Moses that their time is up. What they need to do is they need to head north. Now, there's some complications here, and there's a problem. You can see this up on the map. They have to go through three different territories that God has promised not to give them. You see it there in verse 4. They are about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, otherwise known as the Edomites, so that's in the blue, and he says in verse 5, Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even to put your foot on. And the same thing happens two more times. First in verse 9, they keep moving further north. They come across the Moabites, and the Lord says, Don't harass the Moabites. I will not give you any part of their land. And that's because they're part of the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Now, if you remember your biblical history, Lot had two children. One of them was Moab. The other one was Ben-Ami, and he became the father of the Ammonites. And that's the third territory there, the purple up on the screen. And we see chapter 2, verse 19, they're not to take them either, because again, the Lord has promised it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So they have to do this weird kind of dogleg. They maneuver their way around the territories until they get to a place uh, we see in chapter 2, verse 24, called the Arnon Gorge, uh, which is... Uh, this bad boy up here, just on the top northern border of Moab. And God says, go for it. Uh, it's here that they bump into the Amorites, uh, not the Ammonites. These are the Amorites. And are they all right? They are not all right. These are one of the peoples that God intends to eradicate because of their wickedness. And this is the land that he's going to give the Israelites. And we see there in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it was mentioned at the beginning of chapter 1, two particular kings, Sion, king of Heshbon, and every Sunday school's personal favourite, Og, king of Bashan, and all Neanderthals ever known to man. And in both of those cases, he says, they're fair game, take them out. And so we see uh, chapter 3, verse 31, um, I have begun, is, no, not chapter 3, sorry, I'm not sure where we are now, but he has said to them, let's find it. Verse 31, there's my typo of chapter 2. I have begun to deliver Sion and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. Verse 32, he brings out his whole army to battle the Israelites. But verse 33, what does Moses say? Israelites, remember, you saw it, this is what happened. The Lord our God delivered him over to us. And we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. And if you keep reading that particular section, you'll see that the victory is absolute. Verse 36, not one town was too strong, literally too high for us. The Lord our God gave us all of them. And notice that language, because that was one of the reasons the wilderness generation gave for not going in. The cities were too tall, and yet every single one of them was scaled by the Lord for the sake of Israel. 
And what happens to Sion happens to Og in chapter 3. Again, the whole army marches out. Verse 2, the Lord says to them, Do not be afraid, for I have delivered him into your hand along with his whole army in his land. Do to him what you did to Sion, king of the Amorites who reigned in Eshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. They take all of the cities. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, all the way through to chapter 20, we see Israel start to enter the promised land. Here's the fulfillment of God's promises. They're already happening. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, there's a lot of those guys, they get their inheritance. And they settle down where Sion and Og used to reign. They still have to come over and fight with the rest of the Israelites when they cross the Jordan until the whole land is taken. But we're almost there. And that brings us to the present day. So some observations. What does Israel's history reveal? First of all, it reveals God's faithfulness. Everything that he has promised to do will come to pass. And that's even true for those who aren't his people. See, the promises that he made to Esau, to Moab, to Ammon, those three nations, he kept. And if that's true for them, then it's especially true for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's own people. They've already started conquering. They've already started settling. They can be confident that God will be faithful to his promises. And Moses, he's been quite clear on this point. None of this has been without the direction, the prompting, the enabling by God. The commentary throughout the first three chapters of Deuteronomy is insane. That God did this. God told us to do this. God delivered this into our hands. Everything that God has said, every direction that he has given has come good. He is faithful. But second, Israel's history reveals God's power. Now, I didn't read these sections before, uh, but if you have a look back at chapter 2, have a look at verse 10. There's a few bracketed sections in chapter 2 which are worthy of notice because it says that after he mentions the territory of the Moabites, they've gotten aside there that the Moabites dispossessed a particular people. We read that they're strong and numerous, as tall as the Anakites, and they were some of those giant people that the previous generation of Israel had been so terrified of that they'd been so scared that they disobeyed God about. And what do we notice about these people, these big, tall giants that are undefeatable? Verse 12 the descendants of Esau drove them out and destroyed them and settled in their place. And you see it again in verse 20, say another set of giant people, strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Verse 21, the Lord destroyed them, this time before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. Then we keep reading, the Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau. So there's the Edomites. So there's all three other nations in other words, God has already shown you, Israel, that he is powerful to fulfill his promises to people who aren't even his people. And who are you but the precious descendants of Abraham to whom he made his very great promises? You see, when you make a promise, you've got to keep it. And what Israel's history tells us is that God can. He is mighty. There is no town that is too tall for them to conquer. And they not only have the trustworthy word of their powerful God to go on, and that should be enough, but they've seen it with their own eyes when they conquered the Amorites. So God is faithful to his promises. He's powerful to keep his promises. And Moses is drawing attention to those things as he tells them their history to persuade them to listen to the voice of the Lord as they stand on the edge of the promised land. Because that is where this is all heading. And this is spoiler alert for next week. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is Moses' great conclusion. This is where he wants to land his application for his sermon. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. 
Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. A little bit later on in the book of Deuteronomy, that command slightly changes. It's not follow them so you can enter the land, it's follow them so you can stay in the land. But the sum total of the message is the same. God has spoken to you words of promise by his own gracious initiative and the response that he requires of you when he speaks to you is that you trust and obey. So let's wrap this up by thinking about how we respond to the God who promises. Because we are in Israel, and as much as you might think that just because you're at UWA and you're in the Golden Triangle, that you're in the Promised Land, you aren't anywhere near the Promised Land, nor should you be. And the key principle that we need to, to be remembering as we try to work through this is a principle that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 where he makes the statement that anybody who's a Christian inherits the history of Israel. Their history becomes our history. And he says about them, these things, the things that are recorded here in the Old Testament, happened to them, the Israelites, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, we learn from their example because the same God that related to them relates to us. And so just as he made promises to Israel, those same promises in the gospel have been made to us. And what is it that God has promised? Well, he's promised us salvation and blessing and eternal life. And critically, he's done that in the person of Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the one in whom all of God's promises come to their final fulfillment. But the difference between us and them is that unlike Israel, where there was this future thing and it was all uncertain, what God has done in Jesus is in the past. It's become part of our history and we can look back on it and we can be confident of God's faithfulness and God's power. And just as God spoke through Moses to the Israelites so many thousands of years ago, he speaks to us today and he calls us to hear his promises and to trust his words and to place ourselves under the rule of the Lord Jesus. And if we make that choice, we will, as Ephesians 1 tells us, be given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Gone will be his judgment. Gone will be the curse on our sin. And instead, there will be forgiveness and redemption and relationship with God never to be turned away. And if we continue to trust him and obey his words and persevere, especially in a world that tells us not to trust him, and not to obey him, if we continue to do that, then those spiritual blessings will one day give way to physical blessings in the new creation, where we will enter our own land, not the land of Canaan, but the world remade, without sin, without error, where everything is perfect life and blessing. You see, that's what God promises. He doesn't promise to conquer your big, scary assessments that are too tall for you. He doesn't promise even to remove all the suffering from this life. In fact, if you're a Christian, that's a guarantee. But what he does promise is that come hell or high water, if you listen to his voice and you trust his goodness, he will bring you safely home. Because our God is faithful to his promises and he's powerful to fulfill them. Now, remembering that matters because your life will be filled with reasons and other voices and other spoken words that say God is not those things. And you will question the character of God. You will question his words. 
And whether it's something as inconsequential as the anxiety of an exam result or something as heavy and serious as the darkness of depression, if you're not careful, you will do the same thing that the wilderness generation did all the way back then. You will conclude that the way of life that God calls us to in response to his gracious promises is not good. In fact, it's bad, it's harmful, it needs to be eradicated from society because all it does is hurt people. And you'll stop listening and you'll start rebelling. And in the case of Israel, they were barred from the promised land, denied the promises of God because they did not trust and they did not obey when God spoke. But here is the great assurance of the gospel that we have today that God has spoken to us. God has acted in history. Jesus has died and done away with your sin. He has risen to reign and he calls people to follow him, to trust in the goodness of his words as he leads them safely home.